Exodus chapter 13. And as you're doing that, let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord. It's a gift. As we read it this morning, we recognize that all these thousands of years back, these people that you were leading out of the land of Egypt and through the wilderness, eventually to the promised land, they didn't have the privilege of having your word like we have it this morning, Lord. It it wasn't written. And yet, today, Lord, there's Bibles flooding this room. We, We have access Uh, to your voice every day to us. And I thank you, Lord, that we could gather around the word of God this morning. We could hear you speak. And that's our desire, Lord. We want to hear from you as your church, as your people, of those uh, whom you have redeemed with the blood, whom you have brought out of slavery, like you brought the the Israelites out, Lord, you've you've brought us out of slavery to sin and death. And so Jesus... um, As we're in our own wilderness journeys in a sense, uh, we're looking to you. We pray that you'd guide us. We pray that you'd teach us. We pray, God, that we'd be able to look at these accounts and stories this morning and be able to apply them to our own life. We pray, Jesus, that the written word would lead us to you, the living word. And so, Jesus, we ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation. I pray, God, that, that your spirit would just touch each heart today and that there would be application for everyone here this morning. And so, God, we thank you for your word. It's living. It's active. It meets us where we're at. We pray your blessing upon it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on. So we're, here we are. We're in the story of the Exodus. The Passover has happened. The people of Israel have come out of the land of Egypt. After 430 years, the bulk of which was, or at least a good chunk of which was uh, spent in slavery to the Egyptians, uh, the people of Israel... Uh, God's chosen people are finally free from slavery and oppression to Pharaoh. Uh, The land that has long been promised to them, the land of Canaan that was promised to their forefather, Abraham, uh, is their destination. And they're coming out of the land of Egypt. Now, as we're going to start to get into this story here, I mean, if in your mind's eye, you could just imagine the Mediterranean Sea and where Egypt is and where the land of Israel is, you know that the most logical, quick route to take to get there is an an old road, a famous road called the Via Maris, the way of the sea. To walk that route and to go to the land of Canaan, it it should have been about a 10-day journey. It's 175 kilometers. That's about what the estimation is. And so you got to realize with two and a half, three million people, probably maybe doable in 10 days, but not much more than that. And, um, I mean, at least that's the route I would like to take, right? The quick route. But God had other plans for his children. He had other plans for the people of Israel. Uh, rather than taking them as that, that, that quick route, he's going to take them on this wilderness journey, and they're going to go another direction. They're going to take the long way. You ever feel like that in your life? Lord, how come we're taking the long path? Um, and, and so... Ideally, now again, ideally, the path that they're about to go on should take about one year. We know that it took them how long? 40 years. Sound like your life? Sounds like my life. But God is going to begin to lead the children of Israel to very specific places, to camps, to spots. And in each one of these spots, we're going to see that he has lessons that he is teaching them. That he is preparing his people to enter the promised land. See, uh, They've come out of Egypt, but now God's got to get Egypt out of them. It's like that for you and me too. We're following Jesus. We've come out of the world, but now the Lord has to get the world out of us. You you get my drift? And Jesus said this. He said to his, he said to his disciples, you know, I'm going to go to a place and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when it's prepared, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to be with me where I am also. And so we know Jesus is away preparing a place for us. He's going to come again. But the reality is this. is not only is God preparing that place where we're going to go. He's also in, working in our lives today to prepare us for that place so that we're ready when he comes. And so, you know, God has led his people out of Egypt. There's been this great act of redemption as we've been seeing through this story. But now a whole other work is about to be, again, you know, God is going to get the Egypt out of his people. 
Now the Israelites, we read last week, Exodus chapter 12 actually tells us that they first journeyed from the city of Ramses in Egypt, in Goshen, uh, to Sukkot. A place, you, you might recognize that name. That's a, that's a Hebrew word that, that means they have the feast of Sukkot, the feast of booths, the feast of tents. And so you can kind of just imagine in your mind's eye, two and a half, three million people coming out of the land of Egypt. They come to Sukkot and they set up essentially a tent city, right? In the first place where they are. And I think that there's a spiritual lesson right in the midst of that. You come out of Egypt You come out of slavery to sin and you need to learn something about your life. You're passing through. It's a tent. You're designed for another place. There is a permanent home and a permanent dwelling place that the Lord has for us. Uh, To the Israelites and to us, the Lord would say the same thing. This world is not your home. So let's just start with that very first lesson as we come out of the, the, the life of slavery now, the journey into the desert, we're going to see is, is just, at, at every part, it's, it's God-ordained to prepare the children of Israel for life in the promised land. And like I said, God, God's preparing you and I. He's preparing us uh, for heaven. And when we begin to view life with that, when we take that and we say, okay, this is the perspective in which I need to look at all of life. Everything is preparation for where God is taking me. Then it begins to just combat uh, for us, you know, disappointments in life, discouragement, some of the harsh realities of this life. And so we're going to see God God is trying to change their focus as they uh, head into the wilderness. So let's check it out. Verse one says this. The Lord said to Moses, remember they're they're in this place, Sukkot still, the tenth city. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. Now in the Passover, we saw this, that the firstborn of the Israelites were spared, both man and beast. But now the Lord says something. I spared them. I I redeemed them with my blood. But now let's make this clear as we begin to come out. They're mine. They belong to me. They are to be consecrated and to be set apart to me. So one of the, the messages in this first camp from the Lord is, this world's not your home. You're passing through. Another message is this, the firstborn belong to me. Why? Well, you know, the purpose was to remind Israel, as we're going to see, that they themselves were the Lord's firstborn. You recall as we've been going through this story that the Lord warned Pharaoh when he was pressing and oppressing a slavery upon the children of Israel. Moses came to him and Moses gave him a message from the Lord. And he said, you tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn. And that if he messes with my kid, I mess with his kid. If he hurts my firstborn, I'll hurt his firstborn. And that's what happened during the Passover. The, the firstborn of Egypt were killed But the firstborn of the Israelites were spared by the blood of the lamb, painted over the doorposts of the home and the lentil. And they were now set apart unto the Lord. And the intent was this. God was setting aside a a chunk of the people amongst the Israelites, the firstborn males, um, to be priests unto the Lord. Now the problem is, we're going to see further in the story, when we get all the way to Exodus chapter 32, that the people of Israel mess this up and the Lord changes this up on them. See, in Exodus chapter 32 at the Mount of Sinai, the Israelites do a very famous story that we're familiar with. When Moses has gone away, they fashion a golden calf and they begin to worship that. Aaron's involved in the midst of that. And when the Lord comes in and begins to intervene, only the tribe of of the Levites begin to respond and the Lord essentially trades the firstborn. He says, I'll give you back your firstborn. I'm going to take Levi and the tribe of Levi is going to become priests unto the Lord. They'll serve as my priests. Now we we read on here. The firstborn are mine. Verse three, the Lord said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery for by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. It's a picture of sin. No leaven, yeast. Today, verse four, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you out of the land of, brings you to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, 
Jebus was the city of Jerusalem, so that's those who were inhabiting the area around Jerusalem, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. You shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So not only are the Israelites to remember the world is not this home, their home set aside their firstborn to the Lord. They're also called to remember in the consecration of setting the firstborn aside to the Lord there to remember that God delivered them and God calls them to have this annual celebration to commemorate uh, the Passover. And it's very important to the Lord. We've been seeing this very important to God, the passing on of the baton to the next generation, the communication of the story of deliverance to the next generation, the communication of the gospel to the next generation. And, and the design of the Lord was that, that the children would understand what God had done for his people, how he had led them out of the bonds of slavery. The testimony was to be given to generation to generation. You know, the reality is this, we all have a testimony. You know, my life, my life has a testimony about how Jesus brought me out of slavery to sin and death. And is working his freedom in my life. You have a testimony that God has given you. I got a question for you. Do your kids know your testimony? You say, wow, man, I don't know if I want to share some of those details with my kid. I mean, you know, my life was this and I messed this up. And I, your kids need to know your testimony. You need to tell your children how the Lord saved you and how he redeemed you. And how he brought you out of sin and slavery. What your life was like before Jesus. And how he transformed you. You need to tell the story of your faith with your mouth. That's the instruction being given here. But very important to that was this to the Lord. But no leaven. Get the leaven out of your house. Don't eat it, get it. I mean, how many times did we see the word leaven in those first few verses? The Lord is saying this, you tell the story, but live a life that matches the testimony of your lips. See, when we tell a story with our mouths and then we live a life that is incongruent with the gospel and the profession of our lips that we proclaim, you know, you know who sees that more than anyone? Our children. And kids see that and it doesn't add up. They say, mom and dad say this, but their lives say this. Kids are smart. You know, we say, well, some things are caught or some things are taught and some things are caught. Kids catch a lot. They catch a lot. And, and the faith of our children matters to the Lord. And so the Lord says, you get the, le- just get the leaven out of your house and proclaim with your lips and pass it on to the next generation. You know, I'm reminded of what we read of the victorious saints in the book of Revelation. It says that they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And and to me, it struck me um, that as we come out of Exodus chapter 12, which is all about the blood of the lamb, one of the first instructions from the Lord is the importance of the word of the testimony. They overcame. You're coming into the land of wilderness. I'm preparing you for the promised land. It's it's by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. Now the land of the Canaanites, you know, was inhabited by all these different groups of people. Hivites, Jebusites, Canaanites, Hittites, the Philistines we're going to see. And for 400 years, while the children of Israel have been in the bondage of slavery, for 400 years, the Bible tells us, God was leaving the land of Canaan and he was giving opportunity for the people there to repent. But they weren't turning from their wickedness. In fact, they became more and more wicked. If you read the, some of the history of the Canaanites, they were 
as depraved and crazy as any culture ever. You know, they were uh, very involved in the sacrificing of their children to the false gods that they worship, which is totally satanic and demonic. And so, so God, while he has been leaving time for these people to repent, and they haven't been, they've been pursuing with, with greater, you know, effort their sin and the worship of their false gods God is preparing his people to be a source of bringing judgment upon the land of Canaan and the inhabitants of the land. And we read in verse nine. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that the first, all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of the donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. So the Lord says, this ordinance is going to come into place when we get to the land of Canaan. When you get there, I'm going to institute this. The firstborn animal that are clean are mine automatically. You bring them to me and you sacrifice them. If you have a donkey, which is an unclean animal, you need to redeem that animal. It's a good working animal. You should redeem it. So find a lamb and redeem that animal. And your sons, your, your firstborn sons are to be consecrated to me. They're going to they're be set aside to serve me uh, as priests. Now, the donkey being an unclean lamb, or un- unclean, had to be redeemed by a lamb. And the donkey is really, in scripture, a great picture of you and I. Well, maybe it's a great picture of me. <laughs> You know, I was thinking, how many of you went to Elphinstone? How many went to Elphinstone? Just for fun. How many were taught by Miss Wilson? Who had Miss Wilson for English? Okay. Miss Wilson, I love Miss Wilson. And Miss Wilson loved me too. She had an affinity for me. She said, Matthew Rowan, you are a J-A-C-K jackass. (laughs) When I was in grade 11. And as I was going through this, I thought, boy, that really, this fits. This is, if the shoe fits. And the picture in scripture is this. Teachers can't get away with that now, I don't think. But I loved her for it. You know that? You know that? She didn't make me feel bad. I actually liked her more because she spoke the truth. (laughs) You know, but in the scripture, we see that God, God uses donkeys. Specifically, there's lots of stories in the Bible where where God, with Balaam, God even opens the mouth of a donkey to speak to him when he is walking in rebellion against the Lord. You know, I think of Jesus who came to the city of Jerusalem and he rode a donkey. He chose a donkey. Uh, But before he could use that donkey, obviously it had first been redeemed. Blood had been shed so that that donkey could become a tool for Jesus to use. The king comes riding on a donkey. See, God loves to use foolish things of the world. The Bible says he he loves to use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. But before he can use you, he redeems you with the blood. And then he sends his disciples and he says, go into the city and untie the donkey and bring him to me. See, that's your role and and my role as followers of Jesus Christ. We're, We're to untie donkeys and to bring them to Jesus so that he can ride them into the city. It's kind of a cool picture, right? In in the scripture about the role that God uh, uses us for. He chose a donkey, but before he could ride it, he first sent his disciples to untie it. Before you can use you and before he can use me, you have to be untied. And you know, what a neat thought to think Jesus wants to use your life to ride into the city, to ride into the town of Gibsons. 
You know, I think about who untied you. What is a neighbor who brought you the gospel or a Sunday school teacher who taught you the truth of Jesus Christ or did someone invite you to church? Or, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know, maybe do a Bible study or maybe it was you'd listen to the, the radio or some television preacher or something like that. Donkeys need to be redeemed and untied so that they can become something the Lord can use. The Lamb redeemed us, the Lamb of God, making us, untying us, making us something he can use. Verse 14. And when in time, and when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by the strong hand, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or on the frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand of, a, of the Lord, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of the land of Egypt. We know that uh, many Hebrew people, if they're Orthodox, still practices. They, they wear, it's called a phylactery, a little box that's tied to their forehead. They took this very literal from the Lord and in, inside that is contained the law of the Lord and they, they wrap it to their forehead and around their uh, arm, I believe it's their left arm, they, they wrap uh, a leather strap to remind them of the word of God so that it's on their hand and it's on their mind and so that it will be in their mouth. Now verse 17 says, when Pharaoh let go, let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines. Very important verse. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So now again, you know, if, if the Israelites took that direct route from uh, Egypt to the land of Canaan, they would have met all sorts of different things. There was actually, you know, from the top of the Red Sea up to the Mediterranean, there, there was an Egyptian border with guard houses and outposts and armies and they would have had to cross that. And then of course they would have had to meet the Philistines who we know were a force, man. When the Israelites came to the land of Egypt, they cast out lots of people groups. And one that really gave them a lot of trouble was the Philistines. You know, book of judges tells us all about that. You know, first and second Samuel, the story of Saul and David and all the battles that were involved with dealing with the Philistines. So let's just, I, I can't have my people run into these guys right away. I've got to prep them. We got to have some more victories here before uh, we have a, we have a battle, a fierce battle like that. And so verse, verse 17 is an important verse. Although, you know, the quickest route would be convenient. God, God is concerned about this. God does not want his children disheartened. And I think about your life and my life. God's purpose, wherever he has led you or is leading you, is never to dishearten you. God has led you where he has you for victory. To prepare you for uh, another battle, you know. And we say, well, Lord, just take me straight there, man. Like, get me there. This sucks. And the Lord, you know, says, look, there's things that are in play here that you know nothing about. There are things going on that you don't know. And if I take you and you hit them head on right now, it might destroy you. And so I'm going to prepare you. We're going to get there. Believe me, we're going to get there. We're going to deal with those Philistines. But let's take steps here. And you need to get on board with me. I don't want you to have disaster. I don't want you to be disheartened. Trust me. I'm preparing you for the land and I'm getting Egypt out of you. And so God led his people by the way of the wilderness. 
And it's very important that like on, from the onset as we begin to look at this wilderness journey over the weeks to come, it's very important that we understand God is leading his people, okay? That's why I just mark up the end of chapter 13. You need to know God is leading his people. Say, so, well, why does he lead them into harsh situations? Uh, well, we know as we read ahead from hindsight, we know that God is like, his hand of protection is always over his people. Just because they're facing something hard doesn't mean God went anywhere. God is there. He, he's uh, present with them. And although the situation seems really harsh, it's under the hand of God's protection. So, you know, your life, whatever the situation that seems really hard, you need to know it's under the hand of God's protection. God is right there. Uh, he, is, he is present with you. And, and with the children of Israel, God did not lead them into a place where they dealt with anything they couldn't handle. Oh yeah, they freaked out in the midst of it. But every time God worked and he saved. And so just like it was for them, so it is for you. If you're following Jesus Christ. God has not led you into anything you cannot handle. He has you there for purpose. Uh, for reason. And, and the first lesson of Sukkot is this. This world ain't your home. You're passing through. Your, your life is like a, a tent. Yeah, but I got harsh things going on. Yeah, but you're under the protection of God's hand. It, it's not too much for you. God won't give you too much. And I would say this to you, you know, look, if you try to bear whatever you have going on in your life with your own strength, yes, that is totally overwhelming. Yes, that is disheartening. But if you can look at your life and put this set of lenses on, God's leading. God's in control. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to set my eyes upon him. Then, you know, as 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13 tells us, you can stand up in the midst of it. That no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God is faithful. You can stand up in the midst of it. See, God does not want you disheartened. You know, if I could say one thing in this message this morning, it's this. Take heart. Take heart, people of God. It's not too much. He has you in his hand. Now in verse 19 we read, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. That's in Genesis chapter 50, the closing of Genesis. As, as Joseph's life is fading away, he says, man, you take my, God is going to show up. God is going to lead. And you take my bones and you bury them with my forefathers. It's really kind of an incredible picture. You know, God fulfills his word of Joseph. But what's amazing is, is 430 years well, maybe not quite 430 years since his, 430 years since his death, but around 400 for sure, elapsed from the time that Joseph died. And for 400 years, those bones were a visible representation for the people of God. Look at those bones, man. God's going to come. Look at those bones. God's going to come. Verse 20 says, and they moved from Sukkoth, and they encamped at Etam on the edge of the wilderness. Now, this is the second camp. Etam simply means this, with you, with you. And it's interesting that it's on the brink. It's on the edge of the wilderness. They're looking ahead. God is leading them, and they're like, whoa. We are about to enter a land that is unfamiliar, that we don't know, that although it's slavery and stuff back there, there, there are comforts back there that we are definitely not going to find out here. And the climate's going to change, you know, where it was comfy and nice and in, in Egypt, you know, the wilderness is going to be hot. It's going to be barren. 
And when you stand on the edge of the wilderness and you're looking into it, you need to know something. God is with you. God is with you. And you say, you know, I hate, I, there's certain times where we hate the wilderness. We hate, we hate the desert. We've all had wilderness experiences. You might be having one right now. We all have wilderness. They're totally necessary. You need to know that. In your life of faith, God has to take you into the wilderness. Even Jesus Christ was led by the spirit, the gospel says, into the wilderness. The spirit led him. And here is we're going to see the pillar of cloud is leading the people of God. The desert is part of God's plan. This is, this is the school of training. And, and the reality is, is, you know, how can the Lord teach us unless he takes us into the desert? You know, when everything's good, when everything is fine, the presence of God for me is just optional. If I feel like it. But when I'm in the desert, there's no option. I need Jesus. I need his presence. And I need to know that he's with me. And so as he begins to prepare his people, and say, I'm going to take you into the wilderness. We're going to camp here. And Tam says this, I am with you. Verse 21. And the Lord went before them by... By day and a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night and a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So again, the Lord is leading his people. His desire is that they would not be disheartened, but this is necessary. We're going into the wilderness and he gave them a visible sign of his presence, a cloud to guide them by day. For shade in the blistering heat. I mean, you think about it. You're going in the wilderness of Sinai where it approaches like 120, 125 degrees. It's crazy hot. They needed to be under the shade of God's protection. You know, God, you think, well, how did God get the people of Israel to move? He never had a hard time. It was like, follow my shade or fry like an egg. (laughs) Okay, so when the cloud began to move, they started packing tent because they wanted to be under the shade of his presence. Uh, Inferno by day, but we know, I've never spent time in a physical desert, but one of the things they say about the desert is the temperature does the exact swap in the night, man. Zero degrees, cold, freezing. And so it's interesting that, that at night, the pillar of cloud became a pillar of fire. The Lord lit up the camp. He gave them ability to travel at night, but his presence served as as warmth to keep them uh, safe in in the middle of the desert. And so when the pillar moved, camp moved. And we're going to see here that the pillar is identified with the angel uh, of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. So I would say this. Uh, This is what's called in scripture a Christophany. It's an Old Testament pre-incarnate appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is there in the cloud. Just like he was in the fire when Moses was at the burning bush. Jesus is there with his people. It's awesome. He's the eternal son of God. And he's right there with the people. Now, you know, we think, man, you know, I could go into the desert if I had a cloud. (laughs) Lord, lead me. It's easy, right? That's what we think. We're like, man, if I was just a pillar of fire in my dark nights, I'd like, I'd be totally comfortable. You know, they had these visible uh, signs of God's guidance and God's presence for them. But do you know, we have the same thing today. I, I mean, don't make this mistake. We think, oh yeah, easy for them. Look it. We have something they did not have. We got the word of God. Psalmist said, It's a lamp unto my path and a light to my feet. God's given you a light. His word. You know, we have uh, the presence of the spirit who dwells in us. Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? They didn't have that privilege. And so we say, well, you know, I don't have visible things like a cloud or a pillar of fire. But yeah, we have the word of God. We have the spirit of God. They had Moses who spoke to them on behalf of God. But we have the Holy Spirit who guides us and teaches us 
uh, the word of God. He communicates to us. He lets us know God's, God's plan and lets us know what the times are and what God's doing. And when we wait on him, when we turn to the word of God, we know, you know this, God begins to direct your life. Man, I came to the word this morning in confusion. My heart was anxious. I was worried. And God calms you and he begins to bring direction to your life. Now we come to chapter 14. Verse one. And the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Haharoth between Migdol and the sea in front of Bel Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Now, the names of these places, okay? So literally, they're camping at Etam, and God says, we're going this way, okay? It's not a straight path. Hang a left. (laughs) Sometimes God does that in our lives, right? Hang a right. Hang a left. The cloud begins to move, and God says, "We're, we're going over here. And the, the names of these places, Baal, Zephon, Migdol, and uh, Pi Haharoth, give us the impression that the Israelites were funneled um, down a land that was mountainous on one side and full of gorges on the other side. And in front of them was the sea. So the Lord funnels them with his presence right into this place. They're, they're following um, the pillar of cloud. And God essentially, I would say it this way, he leads them into a dead end. God leads them into like a cul-de-sac. The only way out is the way you came in. So they're led down into this place and the Lord has clearly led them. The Lord has said, we're going to turn and we're going to go this direction and we're going to, and the appearance is that they're in a dead end, but we read here, it was to bait Pharaoh. That's what God is doing. He's baiting Pharaoh. Now look at verse four. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So his Pharaoh, he's back at home. His son is dead. His slaves are gone. His workforce is gone. And bing, the lights go on. What was I thinking? What was I thinking? Did I lose my mind? You know? But to his delight, these reports are coming back. Yeah, those children of Israel, what a bunch of morons. They don't know the land. They could have gone on the Via Maris, but they went down against the edge of the Red Sea and they're totally trapped, man. This is easy uh, pickings. What he doesn't realize is that the trap is not set for the children of Israel. It's set for him, not for God's people. Isn't that awesome? Because just think of your life where God has led you into cul-de-sacs to dead ends and you think, what is going on, Lord? God always has bigger purposes in mind. We all have wilderness experiences. For the people of Israel, and maybe for, for you, if you haven't been following Jesus for a long time, you think, man, this is a, a new way of being led in life, to follow God, to, to give him lordship, to give him rule, to follow his presence, to turn to his word and to his spirit and ask him to, sp- to speak to me. And, you know, when you're following God, though, you know, whether you've been serving Jesus If you're new to serving Jesus, you need to hear this. And if you're old to serving Jesus, you know this. Sometimes it's kind of shocking where God leads you. He leads you to places where you're going to face trouble. You know that the psalmist said this, that the secret counsel, the secret counsel of God is with those who fear him. Psalm 25 verse 14. To Jeremiah, the Lord says, call to me and I will answer you and I'll tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. I will tell you things that cannot be understood unless you call to me. And you know, that's what God does. God, God leads us into these places. And we go, ah, disheartened, discouragement. 
Fix your eyes on the Lord and begin to call out to him from the place of prayer. When, when you face trouble, trust in the Lord. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. We've seen this about the Egyptians time and time again. They were people who looked to the earth and they formed their gods. As followers of the Lord, we're to look to heaven. We don't look to earth. We, we interpret everything by looking to Jesus. Verse six. So he made ready his chariot and he took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. So you check this out. 600 chosen chariots. These are rangers, elite troops, green berets. He's called in all the SEAL teams that are available. <laughs> okay. And Pharaoh has mustered. He's got, he's got, all of the weaponry, the most advanced weaponry that the world has on that time online with this advance, okay? Over them, he has assembled all of his officers. The entire brain trust of the Egyptian war machine is involved in this. Okay, he's not fooling around. He is out for blood. In verse 8, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel with the people of, while the people of Israel were going out defi defiantly, they're rejoicing in the Lord still over this great victory. Verse 9, the Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army overtook them and encamped by the sea by Pi-Heharoth in front of Baal-Zaphon. So with the world's most advanced war machine and chasing a bunch of slaves, Pharaoh quickly closed the gap. And the Israelites are hemmed in. They're in the cul-de-sac. The mouth of the cul-de-sac is blocked by, you know, the hordes of the Egyptian army. On one side of the Israelite is mountains. Behind them is the sea. To the other side is gorges. And in front of them lays the armies of Israel. Does your life ever feel like that? Just hemmed right in. And you know, I cannot, as I tell the story, you know, you, you cannot overemphasize the impossibility of this situation. There's no way out. In the physical, there is no way out. And I, I think of the children of Israel, you know, 75% of them, I probably are women and children. This is going to be a slaughter. Number 10, when Pharaoh Jr., the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. They feared greatly. They were sore afraid. <laughs> and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out, to e out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. These Israelites do exactly what you and I do. At least I do this. Uh, they're in a jam. And I take my eyes off the Lord and I go, oh, Egypt. They lift their eyes, but the problem is they don't lift their eyes high enough. They lift their eyes and they set them on men. Instead of lifting their eyes and setting, I look to the mountains. Where does my help come from? The Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. They only lift their eyes high enough to see the problem, but not high enough to see the protector. And the crazy thing is, is the pillar of cloud, the visible presence of God is with them. The presence of God has led them to this place. And it's like you and me. We have the word. We have the spirit. We have here our church family, whatever it is. And it's like we freak out. We set our eyes on, on the problem and not on the protector. And when your eyes come off God and you set them on the problem, what happens to the heart? Fear begins to take hold. Disappointment. Uh, discouragement. Um, because we're unhappy with God, we start to complain. 
When we abandon, you know, the presence and the promises of God, our, our minds, my mind, goes to the very worst place. I don't know about you. And, and we start to imagine the worst possible scenarios. And for, for Israel, it sounds like this. Oh, remember the good old days when we were slaves making bricks and building things. We didn't have straw and they were killing our firstborn. Remember the good old days? We should go back there. Are you freaking crazy, right? That's what happens. You lose your mind when fear grabs hold of your heart because you set your eyes on problems. You set your eye on the protector and he guards your heart. So we need to cling to the promises and the presence of God. And you know, as they're remembering the good old days back in Egypt, the wonderful land of Egypt, they start to complain against Moses and the leadership of Moses. It's going to be this pattern for them all the way through. Poor Moses. Every time there's, you know, a speed bump, Moses, they're out to get him. Verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you, you have only to be silent. You know, amazingly, Moses did not know what God was going to do yet. He did not have in his mind the picture of what uh, the rescue was. You know, he just knew this. God is going to come through in the midst of this situation. I don't know how, but God is going to come through. God led us here by his presence, by his by his cloud. And, and so Moses says uh, to the Israelites, the first thing, fear not. As we see so often in the scripture, fear not. You know, sometimes when fear just grips your, grips your heart, it, it energizes you to get out of the way of danger. I think that was happening. I think in the camp, it was like the scramble was on, man. Get out of the way, run. It's just chaos is breaking Breaking this, but other times fear like uh, paralyzes you. But I would say that you definitely get the sense from this story that Israel starts running around, you know, like a chicken with its head cut off. And Moses has to say this, stand firm. Fear not, stand firm. And that's good instruction. When you're hemmed in, when life has you hemmed in, the sea, the mountains, the gorges, the armies of the enemy, fear will tell you retreat. Fear will tell you run for your life. But sometimes in the midst of crisis, when we need to get centered on the Lord again, the command is this, just just stand firm. Get your bearings. Stop scrambling and sit still for a moment. Be still and know that I am God. Stand firm and I'll reveal to you my plan. You will see the salvation of the Lord. Now, it's easy to say stand firm, right? You've had somebody do that to you in your life. Running around, ah, it's the end of the world. It's the end of my life. Stand firm, man. Shut up. (laughs) Listen to the Lord. It's easy to say. It's hard to do. But Moses knew God would save the people. And in verse 14, he says, the Lord will fight for you. An amazing thing. Amazing verse. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Like I said, the psalmist said, be still, know I am God. But when we're in that place of being hemmed in and we've set our eyes on these things, it's easy to just complain, to criticize, unbelief complains. You know, Moses is the picture of faith here for us. He's looking to God. He's ready to be obedient. He's looking for the glory of God to be manifest. Be still, know I am God. The, the Lord will fight for you. And so as they begin to stand firm and be silent, th- that's necessary. Look, at, it's necessary to, be, to stand firm and to be silent before you can move forward. Get the orders, soldier. Then the Lord can give direction. And so the Lord says in verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. So Interesting. First, it's fear not, stand firm, be quiet. Now the Lord speaks. Go forward. There's a a time to be still 
And there's a time to act on the marching orders of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses in verse 16, lift, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. That the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Say, so, oh Lord, why am I hemmed in? Why am I here between the gorges and the mountain and the sea and the armies of the enemy? You know, maybe the Lord might say to you, you know, or you say to the Lord, why, why, why am I stuck here? I'm stuck financially. I'm stuck in this relationship. I'm stuck in this marriage. I'm spinning my wheels in life. I don't know how I got here. I thought I was following you. I thought you led me here. And now it's just like, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this place, God. <laughs> and sometimes we don't realize that sometimes God has led us into that place so that he can then reveal who he is to the Egyptians that are around us. Because that's what the Lord said he was doing here. I, I'm going to make myself known to the Egyptians. Uh, your life is going to serve me and your life is going to bring me honor. So, well, Lord, I thought you existed for me, <laughs> right? I thought the universe revolved around me. And the Lord says, no, uh, you exist for me. And your universe is to revolve around my son, Jesus. Your life is to revolve around Jesus. And you know, we, we can just, we can spend our whole lives fighting against God because we don't, ex we don't recognize this, that we exist for God, not the other way around. God exists for us. And if you're fighting against God, you need to realize your life exists for God, not for you. The universe revolves around his son, Jesus. And he should be at the center of your life. We love to think, well, you know, God, you exist for my happiness. But we need to know we actually exist for God's happiness. In verse 19, here he is, the angel of God. The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And there was cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So the angel of God, as we've already seen in the book of Exodus, is the pre-incarnate person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. It's called a Christophany. Um, in the Old Testament, Jesus appeared from time to time before we get to uh, the book of Matthew where he took on humanity. He came in, in flesh and was born in a manger. And so the, the angel of God moves from before the people of Israel and he stands behind them and something amazing happens. The pillar of cloud. There is light on one side and there is darkness on the other side. And, and that's exactly what Jesus is like. We know that. That Jesus is a place of division. That those who are apart from Jesus live in darkness. And those who live in the midst of his shadow under the lordship of his life are, are people who have seen a great light. Jesus said, some men refuse to come into the light because they love darkness rather than light. And they don't understand that I'm the point of division. That no one comes to the Father except through me. And so, you know, to the Egyptians, the pillar of cloud was darkness. And to the children of Israel, it was light. And the two couldn't meet. You know, reading the Bible is kind of like that. You know, you talk to people. And, and for those without the Lord, the word of God is a confusing thing. They can't understand it. It takes the mind of the spirit and the spirit to help you. Understand the word of God. But for the one who has the spirit, this thing's like a flashlight. It's like 500 lumen. of It's just light my path, God. 
Your word is a lamp unto my feet. You bring me light. Verse 21 says, and Moses stretched out his hand. This is awesome. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and he made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. And the waters, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now, you know, I just say this, let the word of God paint the picture there. Isn't that awesome? Can I read it again? Because it's so good. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This is a miracle. This is miraculous. The sea is divided, but not only is the sea divided, standing with a wall to the right and to the left, but God dries the ocean floor. The, the sea floor is like bedrock now to be, a, to be a highway for the people of God. He dries it out. And with a wall of water uh, to the right and to their left, two and a half, three million uh, slaves, the children of Israel begin to cross through in the midst of this impossible, impossible, impossible situation. God does the, imp- the possible. He splits the water. Moses leading them. The angel of the Lord in a pillar of cloud behind them. Light for them, darkness for Egypt. You could just picture them going down in, into this crossing together, the, the, the Egyptians are right on their tail, but they're moving in the midst of darkness. God's people totally in the midst of light. Now, you know, a lot of scholars, Bible scholars, Bible scholars, <laughs> sorry, I'm going to make fun of them today because they teach lots of good things, but a lot of scholars just try to explain this away with natural phenomenon. They say, oh, the water was shallow and, you know, the tide came back one way and the wind blew it the other way. And, and they like, they like try to explain it in, in natural terms. You know, it's been said that the Red Sea account in the Old Testament is to the Old Testament what the resurrection is to the New Testament. Look, at, we, we know this, that, that Jesus died on a cross, but the exclamation point that makes the reality of the work of the cross real is the resurrection. When the children of Egypt, uh, Israel were in the land of Egypt, God for them, uh, Passover lambs were, were given, blood was shed, they were brought out. But, but I'm telling you, the exclamation point on the work of the Passover was the Red Sea. This is the parallel of the resurrection in the Old Testament. That's the New Testament principle, the Old Testament story that goes with it. Here it is, right here. Oh yeah, this, the water was shallow. Look at, explain to me the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You cannot. You cannot explain it because God did it. You know, when my little girl, was Isabella, was little, I'd hold her and we'd go to her bedroom window and we'd look out to the window and I'd say to her, Isabella, who made the blue sky? And I'd say, God did. That's who. And I'd say, Isabella, see the green grass? Who made the green grass, Isabella? God did. That's who. Isabella, see the wind and the trees and the leaves on the tree? Isabella, who made the trees? God did. That's who. And then I'd hold her close and I'd say, Isabella, who made Isabella? God did. That's who. Explain to me the resurrection from the dead. I can. God did. That's who. Explain to me the parting of the Red Sea. I can. God did. That's who. You know, the Hebrew, the Hebrew word that we translate to wall in this story, a wall of water, is a really amazing Hebrew word. Every time you go there, it translates into wall. You know, whether it's the wall of Jericho or the wall of Jerusalem or the walls on the Red Sea to the right and left of the people of God. The Red Sea was parted and those walls stood firm and God dried the ground and he led his people through. 
You know, Psalm 77, worth going home and reading today, tells us a lot more details about other stuff that were happening. It says that, that when the waters saw God, get this, man, the waters saw God. They were afraid. And the psalmist says the deep trembled. Uh, that there was rain and that there was thunder and that the crash of the thunder was in a whirlwind. I mean, Moses ain't giving us any details here, right? He's just all right and laughed. Seriously, dude, tell us the goods. The psalmist does. There was a whirlwind and there was thunder in the midst of the whirlwind. The psalmist says that lightning lit up the world and that the earth shook. It trembled that there was a mighty earthquake. It's like the resurrection, right? Now, you know, it's awesome. And I would say we would be foolish to sacrifice the majesty of God for the pencil of the scholar. You, to that, you should say amen. Verse 23. The Egyptians pursued and they went in after them into the midst of the sea. All of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces. And he threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. Clogging their chariot wheels. The NIV says it better. Their wheels fell off. <laughs> the wheels fell off their chariots. So that they drove heavily. Yeah, I'd say so. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights against them. Against the, against the Egyptians, right? Like Moses said, you only need to be still. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord is, this is God doing battle. And literally the wheels of the chariots uh, came off. It fell off. Verse 26. We're going to wrap it right up here. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled in, into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered their chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Verse 29. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. And look at, life can hem you in. The sea, the mountains, the gorges, the, the armies of the enemy. But you need to know if God has led you to that place, there's a miracle waiting to happen. God can part the sea. You know, we have no disadvantage to these people of Israel. We serve the same God. God said, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. We serve the same God. And just as he led the children of Israel, so he leads you and I. And, and the Lord uh, is never at work to dishearten his people. And so you, you might think, man, I got deep waters going on. I'm hemmed in. I'm in the cul-de-sac. This is a dead end. Has the presence of God led you there? You might be hemmed in, but God might have a plan here to demonstrate his glory to the Egyptians. God might have a plan here to demonstrate his glory to the world and to those who are watching your life. You know, God's parted waters for us. He parted the waters of sin and of death and of eternal separation from him. He, he, he's brought us into light and freedom and eternal life. And forgiveness. Even the psalmist. The psalmist understood this. Turn with me to Psalm 23. I'm going to invite Jerry and Brian to come on up here. And as they're coming, turn with me to Psalm 23. 
The psalmist said this, even in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In fact, I I'd invite you this morning to stand with me. Why don't we stand? And I'd like us to read Psalm 23 together, all right? And these guys are going to lead us in a couple songs of worship. But let's read this together. Can we do that? Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Do you know that God could actually be translated, they will hunt me down. Goodness and mercy shall hunt me down. It's a good thing to follow Jesus, my friends. It's a good thing. Let's pray this morning, then we'll sing.